Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of the Ark of Thoughts podcast. In today's episode, we're talking about the impact of early Muslim migrants to Britain. Now, what we want to do is we want to talk about the early Muslim migrants that came to Britain um, at the turn of the 20th century. As for what has potentially happened uh, between the time of the Prophet wasallam all the way until the 20th century, I think the information is a bit grey and I mean, that's not of particular interest to us. Um, now, as we've mentioned before, we're both from the subcontinent, right? And we want to talk about the um, migrants that have come from the subcontinent, particularly in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, and the impacts that they had uh, as Muslims coming to, their con- to come into this country, their life, um, and what they did. Um, but at the same time, we also recognise that it wasn't just subcontinental Muslims that came to this country. Um, there were many other different migrant um, Muslims that came to the country. We know that there were different Arabs and there were Somalis and, and many others from East Africa and West Africa um, that came to Britain. But unfortunately, I mean, like, I don't know about yourself, but I don't know much about that. Um, and whilst we will talk about from our perspective and what we know from our families and our grandparents and, and the people within our community, I'd love to hear about if you are from a different community. Maybe you might be Arab or you might be Somalian um, or you might be from a different community. But please do tell us. And I would love to hear comments from yourself um, about the impacts or individuals who have had impact in your communities as Muslims to help the cause of Islam and to help benefit the Muslims within this country. Um, we essentially want to celebrate what they've done so far, um, because I think the the sort of the mindset of many young Muslims now is to negate the impact and the effects and and the sacrifices that have been given by our predecessors. Um, whilst we acknowledge uh, that there were mistakes that were made and there are mistakes that are potentially still being made as well, but that doesn't negate away from the goodness that they that they have done. And what we want to do is highlight these good things that they have done um, for the benefit and the platform that they've provided for us now. Um, as well as talking about what our mindset or what our intentions should be going forward as well. Um, so let's make a start. But just before we do, as always, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel to follow our journey. Uh, do like this video as well. And if you find it beneficial, then please do share with your friends and family. So let's begin, inshallah, Kasim. So the first two personalities that I want to speak about is talking about sort of shaping modern Britain um, and shaping the the environment for Islam to come into modern Britain. Um, and I think these are two personalities who should be um, in the minds or every sort of Muslim that lives within Britain now should have an understanding or should at least be aware of these two names. Uh, and the two names in particular that I'm talking about is um, Abdullah Henry Will- uh, Quilliam, um, Abdullah being the name that he took after he reverted and became Muslim, and uh, Muhammad Mamadou Piktol. Um, who many, mashallah, will be aware, um, he basically made the first English translation of the Qur'an by somebody whose native language was English whilst also being a Muslim. So these are some of the sort of catches that we've got we to lay down because there were other uh, English translations of the Qur'an that existed, but generally they were written by non-Muslims um, who were trying to discredit the Qur'an and, and were describing the Prophet Sallallahu to be somebody who had made a claim for prophethood when really that they did not believe that. 
Um, but we won't go too much into that. Now, the sort of we need to talk about the sort of environment that that these two um, reverts and Muslims, um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings and mercy be upon them, um, the environment that they came into, that they came into um, a society who were very, very hostile towards Muslims, right? To an extent where these two personalities, when they accepted Islam, they were shunned by the, the society that they lived in. Even though they were shunned by the society, they carried on in their efforts for deen. So we know that Abdullah Quilliam set up a masjid in Liverpool, very, very famous masjid. Um, and he was the imam and the khatib there. And he was, you know, preaching to an audience of at least approximately about 500 Muslims, along with some of the sailors that were coming in and out from from various Arab countries, as well as maybe even um, the subcontinent as well. Uh, on the other hand, Muhammad Mabajou Piktol, um, after becoming Muslim, he was basically shunned out from the country. If I remember correctly, he was even accused of um, and was potentially going to be tried for treason for becoming Muslim. That's crazy to think of, right? That because he accepted Islam, he had been he had been charged. I think he had been charged, or he at least had been accused of of treason, which is like one of the worst crimes that you can have in this country. Um, he left the country. He went to India. And it was in India where basically he he made the translation of the Quran that many many of us will will be famous with today, um, Alhamdulillah. But what was the reason for them choosing Islam? Um, just briefly to sort of summarize, I think they realized that there were some issues that were prevalent within uh, British society at the time that were against morality, that were even against the teachings of Christianity as well. But they just felt that Christianity Christianity wasn't providing the solutions for these. So they decided that, well, they basically had traveled and that links into the previous episode we were talking about traveling and how it opens the mind. And they traveled, especially towards the Muslim lands, um, Abdullah Quilliam traveling to Morocco, Muhammad Mabjou Kriksol traveling to the Ottoman Empire and, and the lands that we know as Turkey. Um, and um, basically seeing the practice of Islam and seeing that as the solution to the problems that existed in Britain, that's... That's a crazy thought for me to think about, Kasim, right? That they went to the lands of the Muslims and they saw something which would solve the problems of, of Britain, right? And if they saw that at the turn of the 20th century and just before the 20th century, what about us now? Should we not be seeing that now as well? What do you think? It's, alhamdulillah, I think we all have been taught from young age. We might not have seen it in action, but alhamdulillah, we, we've said it before, so Islam has all the, all the solutions. I think the bigger problem in it is admitting that your society has problems. Mm -hmm. That's one thing where we fall down is that we tend to think that our society is the best. And we, and even then, at the turn of the 20th century, these people are living in what you would say a modern society. Mm. At the time, you know, they did some sort of vehicles, some sort of radio, television, uh, food and all this sort of stuff. They weren't living in like caves or they weren't living where uh, they didn't have any sort of technology advancement mm -hmm. but for them to realize the problems that they had and to admit that and to actually want to find a solution that's like an amazing achievement within itself mm -hmm. the fact of embarking on that journey going to do it that's something else that's something amazing something extraordinary mm -hmm. but you can see the changes they had in British society yeah um I think like the the really interesting part is about how they were outcast from their societies and you know they they were treated as like um they, they basically they were renegades um, but, but that's, that's nothing new yeah, like, yeah, let's be honest. Like the the not the battle, yeah, but the ideological battle between like Muslims, sorry, Muslims and Christians, or you can say, 
ideological Christians who want maybe just like land and empire mm-hmm. under the name of Christianity have always been against Muslims. Look at the Crusades. Mm-hmm. It's always been a Christian from Europe attacking Muslims or pushing them further back and, you know, taking their land and stuff. It's never for any other reason. You don't see the average uh, European benefiting from that. It's just the elite. And this, this sort of mindset has like, unfortunately, it's trickled through into a normal society. Mm-hmm. But at, at the end, it's, it's using Christianity as a means of bettering themselves. Yeah. I think the the two personalities that we've mentioned so far, I think their their lives are really interesting, Kasim. And I think as us living in, in, in modern Britain now, I think it would be very, very beneficial for all of us to sort of understand what their struggles were and like how they sort of dealt with it as well. Um there's quite a lot of work that's actually being produced as well, which would it definitely I think for those who are interested, they can definitely go and check that out. Um, I think that's like sort of the impact that took place at the turn of the 20th century before the world wars. Um, and and I believe that at that time, there were especially like a lot of Yemenis that had come across to Britain. I think Yemen was actually a colony of, of the British Empire. Um, and therefore, there was like a lot of the sort of sailors and stuff who came across, uh, who, were, who were asked to work. And uh, a lot, especially in a lot of the port cities, um, Yemenis Liverpool. were very, yeah, Liverpool. Newcastle. Newcastle, uh, Cardiff is another example yeah. as well, where the Yemenis were very prevalent. Um, yeah. I, d- I sort of want to mention all of this as sort of a precursor because, because whilst obviously the the their um, what they provided what is very important, but necessarily that doesn't um, isn't necessarily the topic of conversation that we want to talk about today. Um, but I did still want to mention them um, because. At the end of the day, they were Muslims that had come uh, to Britain, uh, and they did provide different benefits to society. and And you could maybe even argue that they opened the doors for the flurry of the subcontinental Muslims that came later on after the after World War Two in the fifties and sixties. Um, but that's more our sort of topic of conversation, and um, that's probably more the reason being behind that is because that's what our heritage is. And that's what we want to discuss. And uh, we appreciate that many of the listeners also will will agree um, or so will be from the same sort of demographic, which is why we want to talk about that. Um, so let's talk about that, Kasim. Let's start. We know that many subcontinental Muslims migrated away from um, where they were living, which are obviously mainly in the subcontinent, also from places like Malawi and places in Africa as well, um, moved and came to Britain. Um, Obviously, there was a big push from the then British government government at the time that they wanted these migrant people to to come to work in the UK, yeah. um, especially after the after the war, to basically boost the economy, right? To basically rebuild the country. Yeah, to rebuild <laughs> to rebuild the country. In simple words. Um, and there was a big push for that. Now we understand. Okay, so we explained why the Brits wanted the migrant workers to come. Um, why did these people, why did the Muslims from the subcontinent, why did they want to come to Britain? Naturally, when it, when, it, when, it, when any person sees any sort of like chance for benef- uh, economic benefit, they'll ultimately make, take that chance and go. Mm-hmm. The same reason why Muslims migrated to the UK, the same, day, same reason they migrated to the USA. It's because of economic benefit, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And then other motives come later. There were very, very few that would have been that would have came here, would have been sent here okay. for the sake of the propagation of Islam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Majority of Muslims came because even and there's actually nothing wrong with that. As long as you go there, you live by the rules, you uh, perform your what your activities as a Muslims. You know, mm-hmm. alhamdulillah. You know, and that benefit it can benefit you and the Muslim Ummah. Then alhamdulillah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so I think that's really interesting, like, you know, that they come across for, is there economic benefit, like you mentioned? Um, I mean, what are sort of the evidences for that? If you look at it, they, when they came, it was only then generally the, the men folks that came, yeah. the women folks stayed behind to whatever they were, um, even, um, men who were married, they would leave their, leave their wives behind and they would, they would travel, um, to Britain. Um, it's very common, like if we speak to like our grandfather's generation and things like that, where we get this sort of information from, um, sorry, you wanted to mention something. It's because you, you said that a lot of the men came, is that's because they had this mindset that we're going to work in Britain for a bit and go back to our country. Yeah. That was the sort of mindset which they came with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting point that you're mentioning here, that that was their mindset because if you bring your spouse with you, that's a sign that you're planning on like settling down. Okay. The fact that you leave behind key family members in in the in the country that you've come from, that suggests that you plan to go back there because you've left something of great importance back there. Um, and I think this gives it a sort of um, gives us the ability to put ourselves in the minds of those people that came that they weren't coming to spend a long period of time. They were just coming to basically earn their money and to return back. And we know that in many cases that didn't actually happen. Yeah. Um, in many cases, what happened after a few years was the, the women folks started to come as well. Um, but what I want to do is I just want to talk about at that point in time in the 50s and 60s when all of these Muslims are, Muslim men are coming, what was their life like? Like what was their living conditions? Um, how was their religious life? You know, do you have like any, any ideas about, about these kind of things? From what we've heard, from even from our own parents, like let's be honest, Religious life was practically non-existent. Illa mm -hmm. except for a few. And the conditions were these were 12 hours a day, or maybe 14, 16 hours a day, come mm -hmm. home, sleep, and then go back to work, and that was their life. Let's yeah. be honest. So, uh, that's why I know, that's what I've heard, and that's just in mm -hmm. a very, yeah. very simple way. Yeah, so I've heard like stories from my own grandfather as well, um, who came here, and they were living, they were living in, in houses where basically there was just the entire house was basically just the kitchen, the bathroom, and all the other rooms were basically bedrooms, mm. right? And there would be multiple beds within each room. Mattresses, not beds. Yeah, mattresses. Yeah, mattresses. On the floor. yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, and you never came home to a cold bed. No, this is the story that Michael has told me. That you never came home to a cold bed. And the reason was because everybody worked shift patterns. And essentially, whilst you were working, somebody was sleeping inside of your bed. And when you returned from work, it was then that person's time to go for the shift, right? So you always came back to a warm bed that somebody else had basically just got out of. Um, and that that's the way that these people, they live their lives. Like um, maybe 10 people within one house all living all living together. Um, it's like completely illegal now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the way that they lived their life. Uh, it was basically work, sleep, work, come home, sleep, wake up get ready to go work and go back. Mm. Um, I think it wasn't uncommon for people to be working like six days a week, mm. maybe even seven days a week as well. Um, in terms of their religious life, I think one of the most stark things that I've heard was the Jummah Salah would not be performed on a Friday. Okay, um, The Jummah Salah would be performed on a Sunday because that was the day after they got from work and that was the time when the community could sort of come together. So I think that's just crazy to think about that the Friday prayer that we, you know, we all come towards, you know, irrespective of whether a person does or doesn't perform his salah in the rest of the week, the Friday prayer is one of great significance. 
and the Jummah Salah is one in which everyone, the entire community comes together um, and everyone comes to the masjid. And the fact that that didn't take place on a Friday, it used to take place on a Sunday, right? It's just, it's crazy to think about that, that such a time existed. And not, we're not talking like hundreds of years ago, we're talking just, you know, a couple of generations away. Um, that's what used to happen. Um, I think that gives an, a sort of idea about the work-life balance that these people had. Um, but the crazy thing to think is, is that even whilst all of this was going on, and even though that these people, they didn't necessarily come across, um, well, they came across for economic benefit, they still gave great, great sacrifices for the establishment of Islamic institutions, slowly, slowly. So as more and more people started to come across, there became more and more people naturally who were more religiously inclined, who also came across, who then made efforts on those people who had come. Um, and what started to happen was people started to sacrifice their monthly salaries that they were getting for the, not for the establishment of their own lives, but for the lives of Masajid, mm. right? Um, now, we're very lucky in that we live in, in the area in, in Blackburn, in the northwest of England, where we have many masajid that have already been set up and stuff. Um, but these masajid didn't get set up without the blood, sweat and tears and the sacrifices of, of money that was given by our elders mm. um, and by our, our predecessors. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon all of them. Mm. Um, whatever little that they earned, what, what tended to happen was they would be putting away a set amount every month, every week, for the establishment of these Islamic institutions because whilst their families started to come over they started to realize that their children were now not gaining an education or a grounding um, in terms of their Islamic education and there was a keen interest for their children to become Muslims and to live a to better stay, life to stay yeah. Muslims yeah to stay Muslims um, and essentially these elders they sacrificed their own houses or their own quality of life or the luxuries of their life for the sake of these establishments to be set up and is my belief and my understanding that if we had to go through the same if our generation had to go through something similar where we had to set up the establishment these these institutions and gather together money we wouldn't be able to fund half not even a quarter right maybe not even 10 percent of what what these people have done um the sacrifices that they gave that we, I don't think we can do that. I don't no, know what your thoughts are. Um, I don't think we could do that. We're not willing to, uh, it's another conversation, but we're not willing to pay our own institutions properly mm -hmm. or, benefit, or donate towards them. Mm -hmm. Never mind sacrificing our ways to sleep. <laughs> mm. That's a long way away. Yeah. Uh, and the environment that they came in, even though they were earning a little, they didn't have much money. We have mm. more money than they ever did. Yeah. But the barakat and whatever came out of their money is for, well, well it's far superior than what we would we'll ever do. Yeah. Yeah, because the conditions at the time, it wasn't easy living in England. Mm -hmm. um, just look at the weather. Uh, today, yeah, kids can't get out of a room, or if we go to a room when it's cold, they don't heat in there, they don't, can't sit in there. Uh, people need their houses to be a certain way. Like, these people didn't care about that stuff. Mm -hmm. They had bigger ideas in their mind, you know. Mm -hmm. They had, like, you're saying that vision. Like yeah. Vision, you know. And they did anything to get to it. Mm. I think the, the other thing is, is that... Um, like you mentioned about like their, their quality of life and the way that they used to live their lives as well, that at that time, you didn't want to be seen as a Muslim, 
where many people when they came across and you will find this like you know if you look at pictures of if you can find pictures of your grandparents uh, when they originally came to the country you'll notice that in the pictures they they're clean shaven they don't have beard they removed their beard when they came before they came or pretty much as soon as they came to an extent where you know i've even heard stories of when the milkman would come round, and the milkman is like a is a dying concept now right um but still see, you still see if you're knocking about but i still have a milkman um but yeah um when the milkman would come around and deliver the milk to go answer the door to collect the milk if a person was wearing like a a kameez or a kurta or a jubba in inside of their house jubba being very rare to be honest at that time but a salwar kameez in in the house they would go and get changed into a suit and tie to open the door because they were fearful about being seen in the jubbas and kurtas um it was, to be honest it was very common for like especially our our grandparents to be amongst like the the best dressed yeah. um in society as well um i remember that being like a, a very big thing but again like these these kind of things like they're unheard of we we don't think about them we don't we don't need to we do have our own challenges yeah. don't get me wrong like we we still have challenges that exist within society um and trying to integrate within society as well but the kind of challenges that our grandparents and and the generation that was before them and that sort of era that they had we don't have them challenges um alhamdulillah because they came to sacrifices yeah. for us to have the lives that we're living now um i don't know if there's anything else that you sort of want to mention on that particular point i think you mentioned internet and in most of the things anyway nothing's coming to mind mm-hmm. Like you said, our challenge is a bit different to the day and age that we're living in. Yeah, yeah. So I think, like, to continue then, I think what I want to do is I want to sort of, like, um, bring it in a bit of a loop. So we started off the conversation talking about, like, two big personalities that were there at the turn of, like, the 20th century um, that were in modern Britain. And I want to talk about two personalities that were here at the turn of the 21st century. So I did the introduction for the two at the start. Do you want to introduce um the two that we're talking about in the 21st century um what they did what their vision what sort of their vision was um and how how they sort of implemented that vision i'll leave i'll leave you to mention so the first one was uh how should we say the names that people know okay so generally um i think he's known as hafiz patel okay um so we'll stick with hafiz patel rahmatullah uh as far as i know he actually didn't come here because he wanted to come here mm-hmm. as far as i know i'm sure he was he was sent okay uh and this is very common uh you know scholars around the world you know this is what happens when you travel you know people think oh scholars living on the other side of the world they don't know what's going on in our western society you know sometimes they know a lot more than we ever do mm-hmm. uh, so as far as i'm not wrong he was actually sent here for the propagation of islam okay so from what i've heard and i'm going to include a link to the obituary as well um below which will explain in a bit more detail so that will provide a better picture but as far as i know he was already, he had migrated originally already as mentioned um to to gain benefit um from this country and at the time as a hafsab abdullah he had an inclination towards deen and religion already um he lived in london at the time and um he was running like a a sort of madrasa at the time as well where he would teach the young kids so whilst not qualified as a scholar himself um he was half of the quran and therefore he was seen as more religious than others yeah. and therefore he was sort of given the responsibility um i know 
a very famous scholar of the time right now that exists in the country, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, um, he mentions that when he first reverted to Islam in his his youth, he remembers sitting in the class of uh, um, and he mentions that he was Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad was taught the 10 surahs, the final 10 surahs of the Quran by Hafiz Patel Sab. Um, now, I, I believe that Hafiz Patel went for Umrah and that's where he met uh, a scholar of the subcontinent mm. um, who basically told him about uh, to make the effort of deen, mm. uh, to call people towards towards Islam. Um, and he took upon that, that message, he took upon it upon himself as his life's mission. mission from that day until the day that he passed away, um, which is just crazy to think about. And the sort of impact that he had on the lives of people um, living in modern Britain. Not just UK, Europe, the the entire world. Mm -hmm. Like, he's like, I'm very famous, like wherever you go, like, isn't in Albania, they have a street named after him. Yeah, yeah, there's a street that's named after him in Albania. Yeah. Um, He... We even within like the two Americas, North yeah. and South America as well. Um, he's well known in them countries as well. Um, he passed away recently. Um, he's maybe been about five years or so. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Um, honestly, I still miss him, Kasim. Like you know, whenever I did, I wouldn't say that I, I had like um, any any sort of close personal relationship with him at all. It was just seeing him from a distance. Yeah. You know. Um, but. There are some personalities in the world that you don't require a close personal connection with that with that person um, to know or to have a feeling. You won't know. You just have a feeling that there's something special about this person, you know. Um, and when we saw him, and you know, even like we've listened to some of his talks and we we sat in some of his talks as well. Um, there was just something about him. Yeah. You know, um, it was just something different. And maybe through his sacrifices that he's given, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him that ability. We know even like about the Prophet as well, that he didn't necessarily need to speak to individuals for them to be influenced by the Prophet Even just a glance or a look at the Prophet was sufficient to turn the heart of a person. Um, which is crazy to think about. But yeah, um, we'll include the obituary below uh, in the description. But that's one particular personality. Um who made an effort more on like a sort of grassroots level yeah. on individuals um, and that sort of just snowballed and continued and continued. Um, I think the the news articles mentioned that when he passed away, um, as is customary within within our religion, that um, normally the person is buried within 24 hours. But even though he was buried within 24 hours, there were, I think, over 20,000 people that attended his funeral. Um which is probably one of the largest funeral processions um, in the UK, um, which is just crazy to think about. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept his efforts um, and continue his legacy. But that's the word, isn't it? The word that is, he left a legacy behind. Yeah. Um, do you want to mention the... I definitely really, yeah, that you mentioned it. <laughs> so the second person that we want to talk about is um, Sheikh Yusuf Mutala Rahmatullahi um who again his mindset was on um establishing the muslim community within modern britain and he was the first scholar to set up an islamic institution um in britain i think i believe in the 1980s he set up a um a darul ulum or which literally translates to a house of knowledge 
essentially an Islamic institution for the training of scholars. Um, and he basically provided education, both Islamic education as well as secular education um, since approximately the 1980s in which I would say hundreds of scholars have been thousands. trained. Yeah, uh, <laughs> tens of thousands more. <laughs> yeah, um, have been trained. Uh, who, and you know, he basically set the precedent where we couldn't even imagine about Islamic institutions to exist. He set one up, um, and not only do I believe that one to be the first Islamic institution uh, for Islamic scholarship in in Britain, I actually believe that one to be the the first one in the West. In the Western Hemisphere, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're talking Europe's and, and even the Europe Americas. and the, the two Americas. Um, again, you know, the so his sort of uh, vision was more about the training of Islamic scholars, you know. Um, and the thing is, is that we want, we don't, obviously there is a need for scholarship in every, every place, right? Um, but the training of scholars within that particular environment or that own society helps in terms of dealing with the societal challenges that exist only within that area, you know. Um, and I believe that that was basically his vision. Again, you know, he spent many, many years and there are many, many scholars that have been, that have come out of uh, that particular institution. Not only have scholars come out from that institution, but institutions have been set up from that institution as well. Um, not just within the UK, but also, like we said, spanning across to Europe and the two Americas as well. Um, which is just crazy to think about, you know, what they did, not just through their own individual efforts. You see, they were pioneers and visionaries that they understood that it wasn't just their efforts that were going to be enough. They knew that they had to leave a legacy and a footprint behind on other people or a group of people that would essentially carry on um, beyond them. And that's what they've done, you know. Um, but it takes visionary thinkers to think like that yeah. and to then act upon that as well and to go through all the sacrifices and the trials and tribulations that would need that were needed to go through um to to basically fulfill fulfill their objectives. Yeah. Um again we'll leave like a an obituary in, in the uh description below for anybody that wants to read further. Um now we've talked about the the impacts and and the the legacies of of these people um that migrated to britain and what they've given and we want like i said we want to celebrate their achievements and what they've done and we want to talk to them about them in a positive light um but essentially what what the purpose about talking about all of this is it doesn't stop there um and what sort of my understanding is is that whilst these people have done great things um and these institutions have been established and so much change has occurred within the last 50, 60 years. It doesn't stop there. Um, we need to continue to improve uh, the conditions for Muslims living within Britain. Um, so I don't know, like, you know, especially in, in the current age of secularism, we need to make an effort that, I don't want to say, and you corrected me before on this, we don't, we don't say that, so that Islam will flourish, no, so that our generations and we as Muslims will continue to be linked with the flourishing of Islam. Um, so I don't know, what, what do you think about that? It's very important just to mention that the challenges now the Muslims are facing are a bit different. Mm -hmm. And that we as Muslims, we need to adapt. Mm -hmm. and we need to 
kind of understand the challenges which are arising in our society and the challenges which, which, which are going to come, which are going to be here for a long time. And how do we, as like see, these sort of people, visionaries, deal with these sort of problems? What are we doing to actually protect ourselves? Because they're not protecting yourself or, yeah, looking after yourself for one or two years, it's it's a generation thing, basically until you die. Mm-hmm. Okay, which for us is going to be what, the next 30, 40, if Allah gives us a life that long, which is mm-hmm. the next 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. or 50 years, you know, 60 years if we're lucky. And then, so this is the vision that we have to have. Like, okay, we're living in Britain now. We have all these institutions, we have all these things which are set up for us, mm-hmm. but then how do we move forward now? We can't stay in the same place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We need to adapt, we need to change, we need to keep on evolving, we need to keep educating ourselves. And if we keep doing that, then Alhamdulillah, we'll be able to help with the flourish of Islam. Allah will look after his deen. Allah doesn't need me, doesn't need you, doesn't need anybody. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of it. But how can we be part of that flourishing? And yeah, yeah. we mentioned it before, like you know, Britain, or even in the West, you see mashallah, so many reverts. Mm-hmm. And mashallah, these revert uh, brothers and sisters, mashallah, they're doing a lot, a lot of work, you know. Why? Because they have this desire. That, uh, you know what? Islam does have the problems that modern society is facing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I look at modern society today. We look at other countries. Oh, this is a third world country. This is this country is in. Uh, we look at the West and the so-called advanced, advanced countries in America or in Australia or in the UK or in the Western Hemisphere. Where's the highest rates of suicide? Mm-hmm. In the West. High rates of uh, abuse in the West, drugs, alcohol, all these things are all in the West. Yet we we live in the most modern society, mm-hmm. but there are problems still here. You know, we're not as advanced, or we're not living such a happy life as people think. Mm. I think the the other thing to mention here is is that um, whilst we've been growing up in and and the Muslims have started to become more and more prevalent uh, within society in the West, um, I think. Currently, our perspective has been one of a defensive attitude where we're constantly trying to um, defend our faith. And whilst that's very important and we need to skill ourselves in, in being able to defend our faith as well, that's, that's for sure, right? But I do think that we also need to be able to come onto the front foot as well, um, where we need to be able to challenge normative society in some of the concepts that they have and I think that's the way that, we, inshallah, we can present the solutions that Islam presents. Um, and this is like really interesting to talk about because the question is like, how do we go about doing that now? How do we come onto the front foot now, rather than being in in a defensive mindset and always being the person who sort of answers the questions that other people are giving? We need to come on to a to a platform or a pedestal where we are now the ones asking the questions now and saying, well, okay, you've asked such a question now. Um, this is what we have as our answer. But here's a question that we'd like you to answer, you know. And many of these such questions exist where currently the societal norms that exist within this country can't provide answers for, but Islam has the solutions to them. Um, don't want to go too much into detail now. I'm more talking about like the sort of the theory behind that. I'd be interested to hear, inshallah, actually, if people have ideas about this, you know, what are their thoughts? Should we still, should we be more defensively rooted and continue to be defensively rooted? Um, or do you agree that we should also come on onto the front foot and challenge societal norms? And what do you think is the best way to do that? Um, what do you think is the best way going forward? Um, I don't know, Kasim, is there anything else that you want to mention here? I think we can only now have this conversation with a friend. So we can only come on to the front foot if we're confident first in our deen mm-hmm. and second of all in the knowledge that we have. Mm. 
Otherwise, if you're not confident in these two things, we'll always be on the defense. But we'll always be, oh, sorry, that doesn't represent Islam. Oh, but sorry, this happens. We'll be always be apologetic Muslims. Mm. But we're not meant to be apologetic, apologetic Muslims. Mm. There's 1.7 billion Muslims. Just because one or two people do something wrong, it doesn't brand all of us as, as, as the same. Yeah. So if we equip ourselves with the right sort of knowledge, the right sort of training, Mm. And the right sort of mindset and the right sort of, fa- of faculties, you know, alhamdulillah, mm. we can present Islam in the way that's meant to be presented to people. Mm-hmm. But until we don't do that, and until we don't make them sort of sacrifice of us taking out, out just our time to be honest and learning, mm. and then we, we will struggle living in this society. Yeah, I agree. I think like the challenge is now is not to do with our wealth necessarily. Like we, we don't have to sacrifice huge amounts of our wealth. I also don't think like there's a huge amount of like. Um, sacrifice to be made in terms of like our health as well like for example we've mentioned about um the early muslims coming and living in in difficult conditions um working and having really difficult work-life balances and things like that um i don't think like i said i don't think that's where the sacrifice is to be made i do agree though that the sacrifice needs to be made in terms of our time um that we need to invest our time in in the correct manner to upskill ourselves, basically, mm. you know, um, so that we present Islam in, in, a, in a better light and we are involved in projects or organisations or ways in which, you know, we can we can present Islam in a better light to society. I'll, I'll just mention one story. Um, there was a, in Arabic, they call them Shikun, uh, Orientalists. Okay. So there was a, you find a lot of them in Egypt. Mm. They go there to learn Arabic. It was very, very open for them, mashallah. So there was one woman, she was actually sent from, I think, from the United Nations. And she was sent to Egypt to learn Arabic. And they said to her, after you learn Arabic and, you know, you acquire the language and go into the villages and go talk to the simple Muslim and, you know, take them away from their religion, basically. Mm-hmm. But she mentioned herself that, you know what, she came to Egypt, she learned Arabic and she did, she learned Muslim, but then she became Muslim herself. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's weird how things work. But this is the sort of challenges or, how do you say, mental warfare which are taking place, mm-hmm. which Muslims need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many things which Muslim, especially the youth, are facing. Uh, as you said, we need to equip ourselves. Mm, I agree. Let's call it an end there, inshallah. Zakallah um, khair for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, inshallah, please do leave a like and do subscribe. Um, I'd also love to hear your sort of comments that you have or any any views or opinions that you have on this particular topic as well. So please do leave them below. I, I think Catherine's got one more thing. I want to mention one thing. If you guys are from any sort of background, maybe Somali and Arab, any sort of background, African, and there were people in your community who made huge changes when they came to the came to the West or came to Britain, please follow me in the comments and let us know. Mm-hmm. Just because we don't know about it, doesn't mean we're ignorant or we don't acknowledge it, it's just because we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Allah figures for our short community. But if you have mm-hmm. people that you know that made a huge change in your society, your community, follow mm-hmm. me in the comments and let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, inshallah. Zakallah, okay for listening. And inshallah, we'll see you in the next episode.